Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Nice to meet you. Sarah and I were just uh, chatting about, did you grow up in, in Manhattan? No, I was born in Manhattan and I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, but my dad lived in Manhattan for a little while. But you're based in New York right now. Yeah, I'm yeah. in Brooklyn right now. I, I grew up in Brooklyn and then my parents moved to Weston, Connecticut, which is just like oh. a hop, skip and a jump away. So I had the opposite thing of right after high school, they moved to Connecticut and I was like, well, this is where I come now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it that you grew up in Brooklyn. There are so few people that actually grew up in Brooklyn. I did. I grew up in Brooklyn and Manhattan, zero to 11 in Brooklyn and 11 to 17 in Manhattan, but I, I wow. might be the singular human who did not go back. I think you are. Yeah. There's not a single person I went to high school with who did not eventually land in New York City. Where are you? I am in Oakland, California. You are, well, yeah. Oakland's a wonderful place. And if I, I think I've told you this, Sarah, if I wasn't here, I'd, I'd be in the Bay Area. Somewhere. So are you back from Wasaic then? Or? No. So I, I stayed. I rented a house for another year and I'm at my um, partner's place right now. Maybe we can kick things off starting with your relationship to the spiritual world slash spirit world. Is there a specific spiritual tool that you lean on? What's your relationship to Wu? I've always been deeply intrigued and deeply connected to the power of prayer and meditation from a very young age. I was raised in the Catholic church. I honestly had a just fine experience with it. It was the basis to a lot of my childhood traditions I obviously don't agree with or follow the Catholic Church. That said, you know, some of my favorite places in the world are churches and cathedrals. And I spend a lot of time in those spaces. And from a young age, I was raised Catholic, but I was always deeply intrigued by theology. I took a transcendental meditation course right after high school. I've been meditating since then, twice a day. Do you follow the TM protocol? I don't follow any protocol. And that's the basis of what I'm saying yeah. right now. I take a little bit from different places and make a cocktail. That's where mm -hmm. I was trained. And so I'm sure there's part of the protocol that I still follow. Oftentimes in life, I've had to find my own way to certain spiritual practices. I've done several silent meditation oh, retreats. Yeah. I think that's probably the only time I've really followed protocol because you couldn't speak for four days. And I did that and I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was very transformational. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's something I've been wanting to do. And I know a couple people who've done it, including a past guest. Yeah. The first time I did it, it was great. 
it was super inspirational, beautiful. I felt wonderful. I had a crush on someone who was there. We couldn't talk and it was really sexy. And I just felt so alive and amazing. And honestly, now that I think back, it had nothing to do with what was happening with me spiritually, but rather that addiction of being into someone right in that moment and that like crush chemical that happens in your brain this is fucking amazing this was so easy and then the next year (laughs) I did it and it was the hardest thankfully I'm not an addict but I come from a long line of addicts and I've experienced a lot of addiction in my life And I remember it was like night two and I went into the woods and I was like, this is what it feels like to be trying to get clean and really want to, to use because I, I, I was ready to pack my bags, leave. I wanted to scream. I wanted to connect with someone. You're totally immersed in yourself. And like, if you don't really love yourself in that moment of this silent retreat, it's pretty difficult. And I was going through a difficult time and it was brutal. I got through it and it was one of the harder things I've done, especially during that time in my life. You know, I've heard of that phenomena with a couple of different friends over the years where at silent meditations, people fall madly in love. And I'm choosing that those words carefully because I've never had somebody to describe it as like interested in meeting some, in that person. It's like by the end of the meditation, they're like ready to blow up their whole lives to like follow this person to heaven or hell. Um, Meanwhile, two months down the road, this doesn't work at all, you know, but in that moment, you think you've found God in another person. It is so fascinating how we fill in our gaps. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It really is. I mean, I could write a dissertation on that phenomenon. Um, Okay, this is sort of a side note, but also, I think, connected. I remember listening to this interview where they were talking with a scientist about AI And when will AI be as like functionally both competent and incompetent as humans? Because you have to factor in a lot of complete um, randomness and, you know, unpredictability and self-sabotage in a way that's like hard to program on a computer, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, Right. Like, could they get it right? I don't know if they can get it right. Because why would you do that? Why would you (laughs) self-sabotage? The thing that the scientist said was like, oh, you are frozen. Emily, are you there? A good picture to freeze on. But we need the real one, not the avatar. (laughs) Hi. Hi, you're back. Welcome back. We lose the beginning. We need to Reiki the spirits from our technology. Sometimes we have spirit inter- interference. Inter- the spirits really didn't like you talking about not being into Catholicism because that's when they really kicked in. That's great. I have all bars. It's weird. That's why we're like, there might be spirit interference in the internet. Because they jump in and they mess with you so you can't 
communicate things that they don't want you to talk about. Well-known um, practice. <laughs> we don't need to like throw that down as hashtag fact. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it at, at all. Okay, the last part of the AI thing. Oh, yeah. You heard the part where it's like, you know, it's hard to program things as unpredictable and self-sabotaging as humans. But when yeah. the interviewer was like, when can we expect to have this like AI that really is us? And he's like, oh, I mean, it was kind of casual. He's like, oh, we never have to get there because humans will just fill in the last 10% and we'll interpret them so much like ourselves that even if scientifically and te technologically we never get there, it doesn't matter. Like we are the last 10% of AI being unpredictable and weird. We like project onto mm -hmm. them everything that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. That speaks I don't no. doubt. There's no place we can't project. We are so good. Especially with crushes. With crushes. Woo! And especially when we're bored. I mean, it's like temporary insanity, oh. you know? I, I, I mean, it is. It's, it is temporary insanity. Yeah. Anyway, first silent retreat, yeah. great. Second silent retreat, not great. But I did them both, and they were both very different experiences. And you know, wonderful in, in their own way. Did you like come to any realizations after that second one that you feel like is a guiding principle? No, I think for me in life, it's been baby steps towards my spiritual goals rather than huge cathartic moments of realization. Yeah. I've always been really deeply spiritual from a young age. So by the time I was doing these silent retreats, I think everything comes down to mm -hmm. being able to sit with yourself. And I think that's the root of all healing and all spiritual practice. We know this is true because it's so fucking uncomfortable. And um, as the three of us know, spiritual practices are really uncomfortable that's just a perfect example of sitting in silence without reading right writing i mean you're not doing anything except eating and or even like eating sexy food the lemon zest on the avocado no no i eat pork yeah. i eat everything and I was eating like vegan, although yeah. it is the only exciting thing that happens. So you get right. excited about the hummus yeah. when you get fed three times a day. So yeah. And you sit. And you sit. <laughs> I worked with this healer and one of the things we did to start off was do a fast for, I think it was three days. And so the first two days were pretty much solid fasting. The first one went up to 10 p.m. And then the second went to 6 p.m. And then the third one was like 3 p.m. but starting at super early in the morning so I got up at like five to like take a bite of cheese and then you couldn't drink water or anything all day the the thought of a latte just hovered above my head at all times just some pleasure in my life through food it was amazing how how little water I cared to drink I didn't think about water at all mm -hmm. but it was more about like latte or bread snacks or, you know, just things that yeah. you rely on emotionally. And it just made me realize like how emotional I was as an eater, even though I don't oh, yeah. think of myself as having a problem with that. But 
even what I do eat, I'm like, oh my God, it's totally to stave off boredom more than really anything else. I'm the queen of lying in bed at like 11 and eating Cheetos. I'm not eating them because I'm hungry, you know, like I'm eating them to to fill something. And that's fine. I don't get too heady about it. Did you guys ever hear about the 1950s, like basically a starvation experiment after World War II? because they wanted to understand what food deprivation did. And they did 1,500 calories a day, which I I, I really want to point out because a lot of the pop culture diets, especially 80s and 90s, were like 1,200, 900, you know, this completely insane things. Not surprisingly, and I, I am in recovery for an eating disorder for a long time, but not surprisingly, people's psychology was just absolutely destroyed. Complete singular right. focus on food. And pretty much nothing else. None of the other pleasures, people lost their sex drive. They lost their intellectual drive. It is an interesting reminder of how much we are driven by our body. And when you see somebody and you have a mad crush on them and your body basically instantly becomes addicted to them and are like, if I don't touch that person, (laughs) I will literally expire. Our bodies are actually setting our thought process mm. into being and to fight that right first of all i'm, I'm so sorry you've battled uh, an eating disorder uh, i have uh been past past well is it i don't know i've i think eating disorders i know mental illness very well i've been in relationships with people with eating disorders and it's, okay fine present present <laughs> just not as destructively as past it's one yeah, of it's the hardest and it's so admirable that that you're doing it, that you're talking about it. It needs to be spoken about more because I think from anything I've ever seen, it's one of the harder, it's one of the harder issues to, to overcome. And it's interesting what we're talking about, you know, because it's that bodily addiction, right? Whether it's food, whether it's the crush, whether it's drugs, alcohol, it's all the same. It's filling in these, these holes with something. And when you find something that does it, of course you don't want to get rid of that. And with food, it's always there. You don't have to walk into a bar. You don't have to date. You have to eat. So without going too deeply into that, I commend you for the work that I I know you've done. It's hard. It's lifelong. And even for people in lifelong recovery, you struggle with uh, body image and you struggle with... Anyway, well... I think that's like a good segue to talk about Mm -hmm. New York. Emily and I have talked about it a lot because I used to live there and I'm currently looking to move to LA for more opportunities. And we've talked about New York and I'm like, I just can't move back there because I did feel crushed by the city as many do. And, but then she was like, oh yeah, everyone's on antidepressants in New York. I feel like there's this connection between chasing for something physical and external to fill the hole and what drives New York City. Not being a, a local or someone from there, maybe it's different, but. I'm just trying to think before I answer this. Yeah. Because I have a very strong relationship to people's opinions of SSRIs and how they're being overprescribed. Well, I'd love to talk about that as well. I said that yeah, joking, right? Not everyone is medicated here. I go towards humor. I mean, first of all, to 
be able to function at a high level in this city, I can jokingly say you need to be medicated because it's not natural. I mean, you're constantly going. I also love that. That's what makes me feel alive. I love this city more than probably anyone in the world. It's New York. It's horrible and terrifying and beautiful. And for me, I spent so many years fighting off being on medication. Yeah, I'm sure if I took a year and moved out to Sedona and like held (laughs) crystals, maybe I wouldn't need medication. But you know what? I, I, I don't even like saying that. I spoke very briefly about finding a cocktail of things that work. And I spent so long feeling so much shame about medication needing to be part of that healing process for myself. And there's still such a huge part of me because I think when you are spiritual and spend as much time as I've spent practicing self-help and doing the things and meditating and going on silent retreats and praying and reading the books um, and you still can't get rid of I have a major anxiety disorder and it's completely debilitating. I don't function when it's bad. At my worst, I was having five major panic attacks a day. Two of them were night terrors in the middle of the night. So I was very sick for a while and I am so driven and I am successful and I want to be 10 times more successful. And that hunger and drive and love of life, when I found something that actually helps, it's a no-brainer. Yet, yet, I still feel like, why can't I manage this on my own? And I think this is the fault of much of the alternative healing community. I think they push this, no SSRIs, we can heal, your ancestors will help you, this crystal will help you. Like, no, nope, there's no, you know, and I really like that was the one thing I was worried about talking about with you all because I am a firm advocate of breaking that dialogue. Well, I won't speak for Sarah. She can chime in. I'm on so many mood management drugs, Seroquel, Lamictal, um, Fluoxetine, which is Prozac. I consider being able to get in tune with yourself enough to get the correct cocktail of meds Mm -hmm. is a spiritual solution. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I, I, oh my God. I totally agree. That is my spiritual solution. And to be able to not fuck with them through alcohol or, or hard drugs or food so that you're able to clearly see what the cocktail is doing to you because you can't when you're doing this other things, but that is as spiritual as anything that is spirituality. I can't do any of my spiritual practices unless I'm one. Okay. To do hundred. Like when you're having panic attacks. Oh, you're in survivor. And I, I, I existed in fight or flight survival mode. 
I also don't want to be like, talk more about panic, but I, I think just like OCD, just like depression, people say panic attacks, but they ain't talking about panic attacks. I've had in the past panic attacks where it was fully derealization and depersonalization. So I basically start to see my own self walking through the world. I don't know if I can control anymore what I'm doing. And I think I'm going to run into myself like I'm in the third person. So I'm worried I'm in other rooms. I mean, do you ever feel like energetically you were out of your body? Was that, No. It was like a different... It no. was not in the way of like when you relax into astral projection. But yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm just throwing that out. I just went for context. Like I have had times in my life where I've been on SSRIs and and have had panic attacks. And I've chosen to go off of them. And I relied on this book called The Mood Cure, which offers a more naturalistic response to different mood disorders. But essentially what it's doing is using different types of like maybe not prescription medicine, but it does use things that are chemical to help your brain heal. And so even though I'm not someone who's going to be like, they're my first go-to is to go on an SSRI. I think that whatever people need to feel whole and to get through the day, as long as it's not hurting them, then I don't see the problem. I feel lucky for you because what I do believe to be true is if you're able to do that without it, yeah. you don't need yeah. it, right? Like there, this isn't a different approach you're taking. This is the approach that works for you because you don't need to be on SSRIs. Elizabeth and I, right? Like I, it's, and and that's kind of what I'm talking about. And I'm not coming down on you, Sarah, right? But- Oh no, I don't feel like you are. I heard in, in you explaining it, like I chose another way to approach, you were able to because it's your chemical both. imbalance yeah. wasn't extreme enough for you. And, but this is the issue, right? Then so many people are like, wait a second, what book is that? Let me find. And I'm telling you, like, it has been a lifelong battle for me. There is no book. There is nothing yeah, I think it really depends on what people are working with. I just, what Elizabeth was saying, I really like hold true to my heart. It needs to be incorporated more into the larger spiritual practice. That being, I do this, this, and this, and I'm on Prozac and Mobutrin. And all those things work together so beautifully. You know, like, Sarah, I, I, I want to be on Prozac and Mobutrin and read your book, right? Like, why don't I do both yeah. of those? But one doesn't replace the other. And if it can, I'm jealous. And that's amazing. One is the key that unlocks the other. The book is helpful. The book is beautiful. And the book totally. has wisdom. And Have you read it, Liz? Clarity. No, but I just mean, I trust your right. vision of if you say it's a good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not like it's a book where you just read it and feel better. It's all about amino acids, essentially. The things that I was dealing with that I think is different than maybe what you guys are talking about is more exhaustion and adrenal burnout and curing that through diet rather than going on SSRIs, which is what I ended up doing. But if you have a long time challenge that is more inherent into your being through genetics, I could see that taking amino acids isn't going to help something that is inherent in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's also interesting because I think it begs the question, you know, hearing you say genetics, I, I also spent so much of my life like, where is this coming from? Was I born with this chemical imbalance or was it because the trauma that happened to me at this point or was it because, and like, I've kind of given that up too. whatever happened in my brain. I don't know how it happened, but I know that a very young age, I started battling severe anxiety and depression. I've always been more of an anxious person than a depressed person. But when you're that sick with a panic disorder, it's kind of impossible not to be depressed. I, I'm bringing this up because, you know, I, I don't know if it's genetics. I don't care if it's genetics. I just am trying to say, like, it's important to hold space for both in that maybe where I do fall on the more holistic community side is that I don't want to only hold space for prescribed medicine when depending on what is going on with you and only you will know along with your doctor, we're not giving medical advice, but that potentially there are other ways to treat things instead of immediately going to the most extreme medication that you can find, you know? So I guess that's where I would say I want to hold space for both because they have both. I think it's about holding space for just taking the time to get to know yourself and your body. Because even with that, like I actually should have started medication a lot earlier, right? Like I, I lost years and years of my life because of what you just said. I am not challenging you, Sarah. I am not attacking you. But like, again, this dialogue, we need to be careful with it because it's like, you should try all these things before. But I'm not saying before. I'm just saying at the same time. Okay. Because for me, SSRIs made me feel terrible. Yeah. I was nauseous and I had migraines like constantly. It was not helpful. There was a point where it was really helpful because I was in deep depression. Hello in New York. But, But I think after a certain point, it wasn't good for me anymore. And you know your body. And you know, and I knew that. And, but according to my therapist, she wasn't going to advise me to go off them just because I felt like shit all the time. She's like, well, but you know, if you're not feeling good emotionally, and I just feel like that isn't necessarily the only conversation to have around. No. So that's where I just don't want to say, like either or, you know, Absolutely. Um, but I mean, most therapists are going to push for you to stay on the drugs. We know this to be true. This is why it needs to be more of our responsibility to look within rather than look for healing outside of ourselves and trust, yeah. whether it's a therapist or a book, or it's about doing that internal work to understand what each one of us needs. And we're the only yeah. ones that are going to be able to figure that out, you know? Our last guests were mediums and they do a lot of channeling and visioning. And in some ways, that journey that you have with your internal self is similar to that. It's just you're not necessarily reading other people's energy, but you have to know your inner compass in that same way where no one else can really validate it for you. And I feel like that's just a, a different color of the same rainbow or something. Absolutely. Well, it's like being a medium for yourself, which I've actually never really thought about, but channeling a spirit that has passed where you're tapping into like essentialized nature and soul. And if you're acting as a medium for yourself and you're saying, who am I outside of this like biochemical meat package, like, you know, 
turn you're trying to understand yourself as spirit yeah um and so yeah. I'm super into this right now that we need to be mediums for ourselves and- it is what it is that's what it feels like a hundred percent I've just never thought about that language that way where you can then possess yourself but it's okay or it's it, not right but nefarious. like both. or it's not <laughs> I love this parallel too I think that was the scary thing about going to therapy for the first time and I don't know what your age you guys started but Just that idea of you have this professional, and it's the same with the doctor, you have this professional telling you, this is my educated opinion about you. I think it's important that we recognize that you have to know your inner voice in the face of... There's the authority problem, but if somebody is given authority because of their role, their power, when it works, it's fucking amazing. I love going to the doctor who went to medical yeah. school, who can yeah. analyze things because they're so goddamn smart. Like, thank you. Thank you. But when it, when power is used irresponsibly, Oof. which happens not good. in a lot of mental health yeah. facilities across the world. But also just the doctor who means well. Right. Well, that's the kicker. A lot of the time they do mean well, right? They're just idiots. You know, they have their own human biases and women tend to face the brunt of that more often. I just think it should be harder to do certain things. Like driving in New York City, I feel like it should be a different driving test. It should be a different license, you know, like one size doesn't fit all with with these things. And with mental health professionals, I see some of these knuckleheads that are doing it and I'm like, wow. That's scary, right? Well, it's a profession that people with a lot of psychological trauma or addiction are are really drawn to. So, you know, it's like, it's more alluring if you have a a background in that. You just want to be at at a certain point of healing. Right. um, Yes. Hopefully before you start guiding other people. Absolutely. Um, Can I ask an art worldy question? I was listening to your podcast And I was listening to the intro where you talk about art world is a place of creativity. And then it's like, but big reveal. It's also super elitist and stressful and hierarchical and part of a go, 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 win, win, compete mentality. I emotionally have burned out at various times in the art world and just been like, nope, thank you. Can you talk about how you reconcile mental health with being in the art world? there's this element of authenticity that comes with deep creativity, right? We're all on the same page. We love that. That's what moved us into the arts to begin with. And then there's ultimately this side of everything that is is power and ego. And I think that, you know, instead of saying we can't have that, because that's a part of me. I love the business world. I love being a powerful woman. I love that. I love money. I love all the things that can really get us in trouble. But as women, especially, I think that we need to not be afraid to have those conversations and be able to appreciate it. But we were talking about the power and freedom come responsibility. So when that is given to you or when you are operating in the art world, you are aware that that exists and there's no abuse 
of power there because I mean some of these people in the art world are just awful human beings and it's because they're only existing within a place of ego and power and money and both need to exist we can't get rid of either that doesn't that doesn't make sense but knowing yourself and I have to check myself all the time being in New York and being in the art world you just you keep it in check and I think in terms of mental health my mental health struggles exist regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. I'm sure if I had decided to study the Amazonian jungles, I might be a little more stable than like living in New York City and working in the art world, but I didn't want to do that, right? I wanted to be here. This is what drives me and moves me. This is what boosts my self-esteem the most, being in my world. So I don't know. Again, my panic disorder exists wherever I am, right? No matter, again, back to the beginning of the conversation, I've tried, you know, many different approaches and many different things, but I kind of get to a point where I was like, wait a second, I want to be highly functional. I want to be living in this crazy city and be going a million miles an hour and make a lot of money and see the most beautiful art in the world. And I don't want anything having to do with mental health to take that away from me. My anxiety disorder took away years and years of my life. So now I just feel so fortunate to be able to exist as an entrepreneur and be a high functioning entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur. And to know that actually for the first time, mental health isn't getting in the way of that, you know? So whether this art world makes it more difficult or less, I don't know. I don't care. These things exist outside of, of one another, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, it, it definitely talks to how one thing does not prescribe another reality. So you can be in authenticity and you can be in self-knowledge and you can be in awareness and you can be part of a world that has a lot of trappings of ego and hierarchy, bullying and stuff like that. You can be that person and then you can exist in a world and be like, parts of this world are total shit. And yet I'm not going to throw the whole world out because there's other parts of it. I like, I I love business. I love money. This is such a side note, but I went away for the last two days and I do not go on vacations often. You kind of do though. Well, (laughs) okay. I have, I went to Sedona for four days and then I went to. That's so funny that I used Sedona. I I know. I I was like, oh my God, I just got back from Sedona. So I have my own business. I'm a single parent. I like to like go hard on my little vacations. But we were at, me and my friend, we were at this place that was a little fancier than I'm used to. And the Kardashians came. Shut up. I you didn't tell me that. I got a little embarrassed about what this vacation was. Yeah. Even though it was a two-day vacation, I was like, okay, you know what? When I say Courtney Kardashian and Travis are here on their honeymoon, there's only one type of place that can be. 
But and anyway, it's not a woo place. Let's and it's not a woo place. Everybody can picture it. Go ahead, picture right now. All our <laughs> listeners. There we go. Imagine nice yourself nice there views. by the pool. So I live a single mom life and have my dirty laundry pile and have my kid and, and do my spiritual life and have this podcast, but it's a pretty like down home life. And then I have this two day break and I am excited as fuck that Courtney and Travis are there. I almost died. I mean, I, I was not a creeper, but it was You're a like, little bit of a creeper. I, I mean, in my mind, I was a creeper, but I tried to keep my body from being a creeper, yeah. like to actually creep after them. Cause it was also a very small place. Oh, wow. so you could get very creepy very quickly, yeah. <laughs> but I just mean all of those realities exist at once. You can have all of these sides be part of one unified being. And they don't contradict or take away other parts. But it's, 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 you know, it's taken me 41 years to kind of be at peace with that and not judging the other side when it creeps in, you know, the overall acceptance of being and how that exists in a lot of mental health battlegrounds, black and white thinking exists, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. With humans, period. I think we want to believe something's all good, all bad, beautiful, ugly, right? And it's just, it's just not the case. And I think yeah. it's taken me a really long time to understand that it, that gray area, it's not, it's not good or bad. It just is. And that right. is what it means to be a human. I make amends when I have to make amends, but I used to apologize a lot more than I do now. I'm really not sorry. I'm not sorry. And, and when I am, I process it, I make amends and I move past it and it's done. Well, and that's one of the things I was meditating before our podcast and I had written all these questions down and that was the first thing that came up to bring up with you is this idea of anger mm. as, as a signifier of a boundary, but also I don't want to say anger in the way that, you know, this negative thing that is destructive, meaning more the emotion and what that could signify and how it yeah. could be leveraged. Because I feel like as a Minnesotan, like I see you and I see you having a really healthy relationship to your anger. And maybe that's taken a long time to cultivate but as a Minnesotan, we're trained not to have a healthy relationship and any attempts at expressing anger is seen as going outside the social norm. And so it's been really challenging for me to have anger and then see it and then think, oh, this is something I can do a constructive boundary with. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I feel like yeah. that's where you're heading with this idea of apologizing. I, I think it as kids in each of our mental health journeys, we either target the abuse inwards or go outwards, right? right? We, we can do both a little bit, but for me, I think with what my childhood was like, the only way for me to survive was to be angry. And mm. I was very angry. So what happens is it saves you at a really young age and then it's your complete downfall. So I had a very unhealthy relationship and it's not anger, it's rage. I sat yeah. in anger management classes as the only oh, wow. female with 20 men. Um, 
I've been abusive in the past. Mm. I own that. And it's been along with my panic, it's been a lifelong journey for me to manage that and, mm. and build my spiritual practice around managing that rage, figuring out where it comes from and expelling it in a healthy mm. way. And why I say I'm not sorry now is because I have done so much work and I know how far I've come, right? Like I know how much pain I've caused other people and it's taken me so long to process that. And it's taken me so long to be able to express vulnerability without rage. So yeah, I've had a very intimate relationship with anger and rage. I think some anger is really healthy and I can get really angry sometimes and it feels really good when I can express it in the right way, but it needs to come out sometimes. I have so much energy. I'm a lunatic, right? Like if I were to internalize that, you know, I was driving to Brooklyn this morning and the second I get into the Bronx, I turn into a lunatic driving. I shouldn't be allowed to drive in the city. And I allowed myself to just have a tantrum in the car. Like I just let myself scream and was like, I hate this. And then like <laughs> let those demons go. And then it's like, did you feel better? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I wasn't hurting myself. I wasn't hurting anyone else. Exactly. I wasn't like giving the finger to anyone. I was feeling yeah. what I'm going to feel. And, and for better or worse, when I'm feeling all those feelings, it's either panic or it's rage. And it's being able to sit with those and understand what's really going on underneath. And I do now, and I still get caught up, but I was just sharing this with someone today. There's nothing more important in my life right now than to have healthy relationships, relationships void of toxicity. And that takes a lot of work for people whose, um, you know, my go-to is dysfunction. That's all I knew. So it's, it's relearning everything. When I say relationships, I mean, friendships, lovers, familial, it's, it's like learning a new language, but I'm, I'm proud of myself because I've come a long way. It's so powerful to recognize when we have not been our best selves in the past. And I like to think of it basically understanding reality. When was I okay? When was my behavior not okay? And, you know, whenever reality is reflected back to us verbally or through a conversation, I think we calm down a little bit. So even if it's to acknowledge when we weren't our best selves, but I think that is so powerful. And then I think I have forgotten the second part. (laughs) Well, I think that's interesting because I I do feel like it's not, maybe it's just the type of friends that I have, but it's not very common for people in California to call each other out or to give that kind of feedback, because I feel like the inclination is to be nice or not say anything at all. And definitely in the Midwest, you have to read between the lines, which as someone who's also from trauma, struggled with rage impulses, you can't read between the lines. And so 
if I'm not getting it now, like when am I ever going to get it, you know? And so that generosity of telling someone something that you know that they don't want to hear is so important, but I don't think everyone feels comfortable. I feel like that's part of this, opening the conversation from the other side and pushing back when someone does cross a line because the other person wants to hear it most likely. I always want to hear it. You know, I'm... I'm a big advocate of tough love. I need to hear it. And we need to give that to one another. And, you know, sometimes it's it's the right time and sometimes it's not the right time. Right. I often do it regardless of whether it's the right time. <laughs> I don't know if I could live in California. I think I would get kicked out of California. I know. It took me a lot of adjustment, like especially when I lived in New York for two years and came back. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> so gentle and chill, but... Um, I want to switch this conversation of anger towards the art world in specific. And I feel like one of the things that I love about your podcast is the premise, how to dismantle or support people who are in the process of dismantling different hierarchies or different systems within it. And I think it just speaks to like, there is power and there is authenticity and you can choose whether or not you're going to buy into the structures of power, or if you want to prioritize different values and it does take more work, but I feel like you're really trying to create a new narrative through your platform. That was the catalyst for the art career podcast, challenging those hierarchies, but then also, you know, sitting with them and having those conversations. What is this? Can this ego power exist alongside this authenticity and creativity and talking to everyone from an emerging artist right out of grad school to famous artists. It's a conversation, again, you can't just have it with one end of the spectrum. The conversation needs to be had with everyone and see how much we have in common and how insecure we all are at the end of the day, right? And we all need these mirrors to be able to be held up to ourselves by someone else. I feel like because I am tell it like it is, because I do really enjoy radical honesty and I am very transparent about my struggles and vulnerability. People have an easier time. What I'm finding, this is the first time I've interviewed people in my life, but what I'm finding is people respond to that and they're then more willing to open up. And that's what we need in the art world, right? We need more honesty. We need that dialogue too. And it can include both, both ends of that spectrum, but we need to talk about what it really is and what it really isn't and it's breaking those barriers as cliche as that can sound but I think it needs to be done especially in New York City in the art world Mm -hmm. and um, I feel really lucky to be having these conversations with all of these brilliant art world people because at the end of the day again sometimes we forget that what we all, most of us do have in common is that wild creativity and authenticity that has been with us since children. You know, like art makes us feel alive, whether it's a me, curator, an artist, we've approached the world from this 
crazy space of sensitivity and creativity and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's my whole entire universe is art, but that's it. And, and then for me, finding how to incorporate my sharky business brain and like, can these two dance together? And, you know, I don't know, but it's like using bad money, you know, that you get yeah. from a company that's maybe not good, but for something yeah, good. Totally. totally. What are some things that you see younger artists or curators or whoever doing that you would advise against, you know, having been an art agent and a gallerist as well? It's not for me to say, because I think everyone's journey is so different. And I like working yeah. with artists and trying to figure out what works for them. But just like with everything we've talked about, it's being careful who you trust, right? Not just giving over to any authoritative or any mentor. We've all been guilty of this. As- ding, ding, ding. That oh, is no. so smart. I want to use the mental yellow highlighter button yeah. to highlight that because a lot of times you're very attracted to authority figures that yeah. mirror the dysfunction of your family. And yeah. those are the authority figures you become most addicted to getting their approval. And I think be able to discern authority figures that have your best interest in mind, who are capable of putting your best interests first and um, are able to match you emotionally. Like Emily, you, you brought up a thing. Way to unpack that, Liz, because I think we kind of touched on that in a previous episode that really you're working out all your family shit within the art world and how unregulated the art world is. That can be even more dangerous in the art world than like in a corporate job. Right. On that note, thinking more about who you do trust with your work, but then also giving people authority over you, even if you don't work with them. I feel like we've talked giving about Giving anyone authority. Yeah. Like, especially and we as an still artist. do it. Like, oh, I, yeah. still, I still do it sometimes, yeah. you know, and it's being able to like check myself. But, you know, yeah, if I could give advice to any, I mean, what the hell do I know? I don't know anything. But <laughs> if I could give advice to anyone art world or not just be careful who you trust like mentors are great mentors are essential be careful what mentors you're choosing um and even within that knowing that they're still human and that they will help you to a point but not everyone has to be on their own healing journey and so if they're not fully healed they can't meet you the, the rest of the way and most of us are not fully healed what does fully healed even mean I don't I don't I mean I'm fully healed eventually but I don't think I will be so and and yet I still have chunks of wisdom and things that I know that I can share and that's why I'm doing I've put myself out publicly in a podcast to you know not hear myself talk but to have these conversations and and I don't know the answers, that's this dialogue. It's, you know, like fleshing through all these things and figuring out what we all have in common. I, I wrote kind of a cheesy question, but we can maybe use it as a way to wrap things up. If you had three tools to burn it all down, what would you use? It being the patriarchy, capitalism, Maybe you wouldn't burn any of it down. This is a tricky question. I, <laughs> I can honestly say this is not going to go over big. I don't care. I don't know what I would burn down. I don't yeah. know what I would choose 
to burn down. There's so much toxicity going on in our world right now. This is a really hard question to answer. When we start talking about a universe in which children are getting killed, I don't really feel like there's a lot of space to talk about anything other than that or what I would choose to change or burn down. Like so many things go into what's happening right now. And that's really all. I don't give a shit that I'm a feminist, right? I don't care that I'm queer when there are children being murdered. None of those things matter, even though obviously the patriarchy is going to feed into so many of the issues we're having. But we need to break that down, adamant about making very specific changes right now. So I don't know. I can't really answer yeah. the question. I think everything's too upsetting right now to think of like a magic tool to break down yeah. patriarchy. Like I don't, I don't, I don't fucking know. Anymore. Well, and for me, like the first three, which I was surprised was like peace, love and understanding. And it's super even more cheesy, but I do feel like at some level we can't actually burn it down. We need to dig Yeah, but Sarah, maybe it's the opposite of that. And maybe we have a little too much peace, love, and understanding. Peace, love, and understanding isn't, yeah. you know, and this comes back to what we do with healthy anger, what we don't do with healthy anger. You yeah. Know? I, mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer yeah, is. Yeah. Well, I right think um, probably the left is more understanding and yes there's a certain level of lack of understanding and just fear-based activity when you're hoarding a hundred guns in your basement and then eventually write a manifesto that you're going to kill a bunch of people for race-related reasons. I would hope for that population to have more understanding that we're all human. So I don't say it like us in the room, you know, I say it more as like a general thing because it is so divided right now politically and a lot of these issues are really painted like back to the black and white thing like you know guns like either you're for them or you're against them it, it's dark and complicated and we need to start having discussions with the with the gray area population right we can't afford to be only super uber left during these conversations no absolutely well that's what i mean like yeah we need to connect with the people who we disagree with oh i mean and that's where the love and peace come into play because yeah not to punch them in the face you know or whatever (laughs) liz (laughs) i don't know i hear the words i just i'm in an angry phase and i have historically not struggled with rage at people. Like that's just not been the thing that I I'm more of a quiet runner (laughs) when, when things are hard, which is not more pleasant. It's just a different thing. I I'm tired of humanizing the other side who are just causing so much death to humans and planet and everything. But I don't want to think about that too much because like, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I don't want to go down into some weird, we're all doomed. I don't think we're all doomed. That's good. Well, maybe we can wrap it up with Emily, what you have coming up, anything you'd like to plug, (laughs) just a full switch of conversation. I don't think I need to plug anything. Listen to the Our Career Podcast. I hope you like it. I like it. I've really enjoyed interviewing guests on season one. 
we're wrapping up season one soon. Season two will launch in September. That's it. Okay. I'm really happy cool. to be here with you two. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you so much. much. I mean, I never get to have these conversations, right? Like in, in the art world, it's not like yeah. anyone is asking you what your spiritual beliefs are for the most part. And so it's really refreshing to be able to have these conversations because it's obviously something that has been such a important part of my life. So thank you. Thank you so much for being open to them. I think the more we normalize it or paranormalize it, the more it can be just a comfortable thing. Cause I think right now it doesn't feel connected to the art world in a way that maybe is separating the authenticity from the market. And that could just be capitalism, but well, it is, but I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying yeah. to you know, connect. When we are integrated, we are healthier. And then, you know, honestly, then our business practices get healthier. Yeah, Money well, exactly. Like it has a ripple effect. It's not just like about how I feel in my own mind, you know, right. it impacts yeah. how I then can conduct myself. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you, Emily. Yeah. It was awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was lovely. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.